0: Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager here at the Hendricks Center. And our topic for today is Jesus and the Royal Psalms. Jesus and the Royal Psalms. We're going to be talking about messianic ideas in a couple of psalms and highlighting one way that we've had this conversation here on campus. I have two guests in studio with me today. First guest is Dr. Daryl Bach, Executive Director of Cultural Engagement and Senior Research Professor of New Testament here at DTS. Welcome, Daryl.
1: My pleasure to be here.
0: So good to have you. And second guest is Dr. Gordon Johnston, who is a professor of Old Testament here at DTS. Thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. You guys both authored a book called Jesus the Messiah that in part dealt with our topic today. So I'm really excited to have you guys on the show and help us walk through some of these uh, ideas, messianic ideas in the Psalms. But Gordon, we were talking yesterday about this, uh, the whole idea of the Royal Psalms. And you said that there's a really important text that we need to start with as we approach uh, the Royal Psalms, and that's a text in Second Samuel. Second Samuel seven, Nathan's Oracle. Yeah, so I wanted to just read a short portion of that real quick, and have you help us work through what we need to know before we move into a discussion of the Royal Psalms. So, this is Second Samuel verse twelve through sixteen, and Nathan here, the prophet, is talking to David, and he's uh, telling him what God told him to say. And here's what he says: When the time comes for you to die. I will raise up your descendant, one of your own sons, to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. I will become his father, and he will become my son. When he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with wounds inflicted by human beings. But my loyal love will not be removed from him, as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent." So Gordon, help us understand what this has to do with the Royal Psalms and why we need this text in the back of our minds as we approach the Psalms. Sure. So the Royal Psalms we're going to look
2: at today, and there's a number of them, but the two we're going to look at are Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Yeah. And both of those two Psalms reflect uh, the theology, the themes that are in Nathan's Oracle. Uh, uh, First of all, Yahweh had promised uh, that David – he would establish this uh, dynasty for David. David wanted to build a temple for Yahweh, but Yahweh said, uh, it's not for you to build a temple, but I'm going to raise up your son, Mm -hmm. It turns out to be Solomon, who built the temple. I'm going to establish – David, I'm going to establish your throne uh, so you can successfully pass this on to your son. Mm -hmm. I'll establish his throne, and he'll be the one that's going to build the temple. And then Yahweh promises that he's going to have a father-son relationship, not only with David, but with Solomon, uh, and father-son relationship in the sense that uh, he's going to correct him, like a good father does, to make sure that David's son is faithful to him, uh, but also that his love is going to be irrevocable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he's going to establish this dynasty that's going to be ongoing. Uh, and so both of those themes, as far as the sonship, uh, mm-hmm. Davidic sonship, and then and then David's son Taking the throne and okay. Yahweh putting upon the throne and having this father-son relationship for this uh, for this irrevocable uh, 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 kingdom uh, that, and ultimately that lays the foundation for the messianic kingdom mm. and the messianic king one day to come.
0: Okay, so with that in mind, as we turn to the royal psalms, uh, let me ask, what uh, Daryl, what royal psalms in general? Are we have a number of psalms called the royal psalms, including the ones we'll talk about today, Mm -hmm. Psalm two and Psalm one ten. But help us understand what a royal psalm in general is. A royal psalm is a psalm about royalty. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense.
1: Let's let's make this as difficult as we can. Okay. Uh, So it's about it's a psalm about the king.
0: Okay. And so this has to do with the Davidic king. Then when we get to Psalm two, how is that specifically used in terms of? the royal coronation and things like that.
2: Right. So Psalm 2, it starts off where Yahweh says, uh, I've installed my king on Zion. Uh, He proclaims, uh, you're my son. Uh, Today I've become your father.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, And he says, ask of me and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the end of the earth, uh, your landed possessions. So you've got Yahweh installing uh, the Davidic king upon the throne. Uh, He refers to him as his Mashiach, his anointed one, Mm -hmm. so he's been anointed. Uh, and then there's this oracle, in which he proclaims that he's got the father-son relationship. Now the background, there's an important background to all this, uh, and it'd be helpful for us to get to uh, first in First Kings chapter one. Uh, uh, Solomon, or sorry, David's on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's, well, he's old. He's, he's dying, and Adonijah, another son, wants to be king, and he's rallied supporters behind him, including Abiathar, the priest, Joab, the general. And he's got about 50 uh, military behind him, and he's trying to usurp the throne mm-hmm. so that it won't come to Solomon. Uh, Bathsheba gets word of this, and Zadok the priest gets word of this, and they come into David, and they tell David that uh, Adonijah, this upstart son, has gone down to the Ein Rogel, a spring out no outside of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. south of town, to anoint Adonijah, and. Uh, Solomon's life would be on the line, Bathsheba would be at risk for this. And so David tells Zadok, a faithful priest, Nathan, a faithful prophet, to go take Solomon and not take him to Ein Rogel, the spring of Ein Rogel, but a nearer spring, Gihon spring, and there anoint Solomon as king, Mashiach, pour the anointing oil on him, and then take him up to the palace and put him on the throne Mm -hmm. and proclaim him to be king. So you have both a prophet and a priest involved in the anointing and the proclamation, and that's the background of Psalm 2, the background of Psalm 110, likely the background of Psalm 72. All three of these psalms were written to legitimatize Solomon's enthronement, Solomon's rule, and, then, and they would have been reused for every Davidic king mm-hmm. from that point on, and then serving as a foundation ultimately for... Messianic eschatological king. Mm -hmm. So this is kind of the background. It's interesting. Even Psalm two begins by asking, "Why are the enemies, uh, the peoples, the the rebels devising this vain thing?" We typically read that it sounds like hostile Gentile nations, Mm -hmm. Uh, but in this case, it may have been uh, people within Israel (laughs) Hmm. beginning to rebel, but foreshadowing the fact that uh, uh, the the people as a whole are going to be opposed. So uh, uh, in there, Yahweh. Proclaims that he's the one that's putting his son, David mm-hmm. or Solomon's son, on the throne. I'm the one that's installing mm-hmm. him. Uh, he's he's my anointed one. Uh, I've got a father son relationship with him, and I'm going to establish his reign. Uh, and so uh, the 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 father son imagery in Psalm two is not directly messianic. It does have Daryl's going to explain how it how it gets teased out. So we often read Psalm two where it says. Uh, you're my son, today i begotten you. And sometimes we, we assume that that's directly messianic.
1: Son of God. Son of God. Yeah. Son of God. And
2: then the question yeah. is, well, it says, today i begotten you, so how could the second person of the Trinity be eternal if the father, the first person of the Trinity, gave birth to him at some point? But likely that's really just picking up on that 2 Samuel 7, hmm. that I'm going to be a father to him, he'll be a son to me. And so when did Solomon become the Davidic son, that mm-hmm. was when he became the Davidic king.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned a, a couple of lines. Let me go ahead and read just that section that you were talking about, uh, Psalm 2, 6 through 8. It says, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. The king says, I will announce the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. This very day I have become your father. Ask me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the ends of the earth as your personal Property, and so you're saying this is not a, a literal begetting, right? This is it's kind of it's a metaphorical. metaphorical,
2: in the same okay. way that in 2 Samuel seven, mm-hmm. where God says to David, "Your son that I'm going to put upon your throne, David, I'll be like mm-hmm. a father to mm-hmm. him; he'll be like a son to me." Mm-hmm. And it, even Second Samuel seven, when he sins,
0: mm-hmm.
2: I'll correct him. So clearly, this is not the divine son.
0: Yeah. So this was written in the pre-exilic period. Mm-hmm. How did people begin to interpret this after there was no monarchy?
2: so right this is interesting so we have there there was likely three psalms that uh, were associated that david wrote uh, uh, on the occasion of solomon's coronation psalm Mm 2. psalm 110 we'll get to and then likely psalm 72 for celebrating solomon's coronation Uh, these three psalms likely were kind of in a packet Hmm. by themselves together right and then when the psalter itself began to be put together uh, psalm 2 uh, was included in what we call Book 1, which is Psalms 1 to 42. Uh, book 2 is Psalms 42 to 72, and Psalm 72, another David psalm is at the end of that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those would, would be early hymn books, if you will. The, uh, book 1 and Book 2, f- Psalm 1 to 42 and 43 to 72 were pre-exilic hymn books, that there was lots of psalms that had been written. I mean, Moses had written a psalm really, uh, really early, but these were the ones that were used on a regular basis for the worship of the people of God. Uh, then the people went into exile, and some of the pre-exilic psalms continued to be used among the exiles, and so we actually have book three and book four of the Psalter, Psalm 73 through 89, and Psalm 90 through 106 were likely the hymn books of the exiles. They contain both pre-exilic psalms that have been cherished as well as some exilic psalms that are lamenting the fact that we're in exile now.
0: Mm.
2: Okay, that's why we know it's exilic because we're we're in exile. Um, uh, And so uh, they were hoping and praying for God to restore them. Then we have Book 5, which is Psalm 107 through 150, And that's a post-exilic collection. We know that because it opens with, praise God, he brought us back from exile. Hmm. It includes pre-exilic psalms that Mm -hmm. have been loved, Mm -hmm. exilic psalms as well as post-exilic psalms. Now, here's the interesting thing. Although Psalm 2 and Psalm 72 and Psalm, what we call Psalm 272 and Psalm 110, were originally pre-exilic in composition written by David, Mm -hmm. Psalm 110, when it became part of this hymn book of the Mm post-exilic community, it was originally a psalm written time of David celebrating Solomon's coronation, and it would have been reused every time a Davidic king came to the throne. But what in the world, why, is it part of the hymn book
1: mm-hmm.
2: of the post-exilic community when they're back in the land and they've got a temple and a priest, but they don't have a king and they mm-hmm. don't have a palace? Mm-hmm. So why is Psalm 110 being used by the exiles as part of their hymn book? likely it was it was giving voice to their expectation and hope that God would restore David King because mm-hmm. a prophet said that one day God's going to raise up a new David and put a new David mm-hmm. on the throne that we know as Messiah and they began to read Psalm 110 as giving voice to that expectation that God will restore Davidic King and along that line Psalm 2 would have been would have been reread even though it's in the first hymn book, it's reread, begins to get reread in terms of pointing toward uh, a future eschatological mm-hmm, king. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Interesting that I think – correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think in the Dead Sea Scrolls there is uh, Psalm 2 as replacing what we know as Psalm 1.
2: Well, I think we what we'd say it was the original uh, – uh, one of the collections – they had several collections of psalms at Qumran. Uh, one of them opens with Psalm 2, hmm. uh, and then in the traditional Hebrew canon we have today Psalm One, is it, it introduces that hmm. uh, because uh, after Jerusalem was destroyed, there's not a, a Davidic king. Yeah, so along that the expectation
0: has just continued on. That's right through into even to the time of Jesus, and so Daryl, now let's think about uh, Jesus and how he is connected to this. The language of "You are my Son" sounds an awful lot to me like the Transfiguration, the baptism of Jesus. H- how? Does the New Testament connect this psalm to Jesus?
1: Well, New Testament connects it at at the Transfiguration and at the baptism. Baptism is a private experience primarily between Jesus and God, which John the Baptist is a witness to. Uh, John's Gospel tells us that. Many people will see paintings of this and think, oh, everybody experienced this at the same time and the crowd saw it. But John the Baptist doesn't need to be a witness to it if the people present saw it. So um, so this is a private experience in which God is affirming Jesus. In effect, your ministry is beginning and it is beginning as my son, and it's not informative as much as it is an imprimatur, an endorsement and an indication that now is the time to begin. The transfiguration, slightly different experience. This is for the disciples. This is, this is, you know, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased or whom I've chosen, depending on whether you're listening to Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And then it goes on, listen to him. Mm-hmm. They're told through the language of Deuteronomy 18, Jesus, a prophet like Moses, a leader-deliverer prophet, if you will, um, who they now need to listen to because he's going to tell them things they weren't expecting, like the Messiah is going to suffer. And so they need to incorporate that into their understanding of who Jesus is. I think we also need to appreciate... Um, kind of the throne to which Jesus is headed. Now this will be clear when we get to Psalm 110, but I want to read a passage out of the Old Testament most people don't even know about that's very important in this regard. It deals with the uh, anointing of Solomon by Zadok and it's First Chronicles 29:23, And it says this, Solomon sat on the Lord's throne as king in place of his father David He was successful and all Israel was loyal to him, kind of a summary and a review of the installation of Solomon as David's descendant. And the key thing here to note is is that the throne on which Solomon is sitting, which is on the earth, is called the Lord's throne. Hmm. You know the passage that you read from Psalm 2 talks about having authority to the ends of the earth. Well, how in the world does that happen? Israel's just a little bitty country that doesn't have much going for it, doesn't have much power, et cetera. So how can we believe that? Well, this is in anticipation of the sovereignty that the Son ultimately the sun ultimately mm-hmm. will have, and in the midst of that, this what some people think is strictly a heavenly throne, the Lord's throne is a heavenly throne, and then David's throne is something else on earth. No, 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 that's not what this text is saying. This text is saying, no, the heavenly throne and the earthly throne. The authority that is wrapped up in this king ultimately is an ultimate authority. That's where the Davidic dynasty is headed, Mm. and uh, that's what this kingship ultimately represents. And so when we get to Jesus, all this language that was tied to an earthly king in a little nation of Israel gets filled in and escalated – escalated might be one way to think about it – actually is realized Mm -hmm. in this total authority that the Son of God has. Things that typology does is it repeats a pattern, but it escalates it, it mm-hmm. heightens it, mm-hmm. and so there there's more of than what you had before. Uh, I call it thinking about a passage, and the passage goes on steroids. It just mm-hmm. I amps up a level, mm-hmm. and so so this passage is ampeded up, and now the Son of God, who is a King, who's been in one sense adopted, in loose sense of that term, now is. The Son of God, not adopted, not, not metaphor- just
2: not metaphorical, not anymore. metaphorical, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not
1: not merely, uh, not not created in any sense, but totally preexistent and co-laboring with the Father from the very beginning. And um, and the New Testament is beginning to push in that direction. As we get these texts, we see a glorified Jesus at the Transfiguration, in which the message is this is my son in whom I've chosen, and this authority of being on the Lord's throne is what this is all about. And the exhortation of Psalm 2 ultimately, which is to kiss the son, to mm-hmm. show respect for the sovereignty of the son, mm-hmm. is, is the point, part of the point of th- this is my son, this is the one I'm working through. Ultimately, if you're going to deal with what God is doing and what salvation is about, you're going to have to do it through this son.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so we see this messianic expectation and eschatological hope that's being uh, pushed through ever since the, the Psalm 2 was written, and it is kind of like informing all of this that's happening with Jesus. Um, interesting, even later on, the rabbis in, in the Talmud in uh, Sukkot 52 has this connected with the son of David, um, the Messiah. God will say to him, ask me, I'll give the nations to you. And so he's, he's, they're quoting this as well, and so that that expectation goes on. The
1: ultimate expectation is is that the righteous will be vindicated through the one whom God, through whom the one God is ruling, mm-hmm. and and that's what you're seeing here is that's a declaration of that's who this person is. So this is Jesus saying, He's the one. This is God saying mm-hmm. to Jesus, He's the one.
2: Mm-hmm. He's the greater Son of Man. That's right. Yeah. He's the
1: greater Son. He is. The, the Greater Son, son yeah, of you go. God, you know, and I, and I'm doing that voice on purpose because I want to distinguish between between Son of God and kind of its normal sense in which it was originally being used, and what it came to mean as the story was unfolding, mm-hmm. and as the program of God was becoming progressively revealed as we mm-hmm. move through Scripture. Now, I will say this in fairness: some people think that Psalm two and Psalm one ten, the passages we will be talking about, are directly prophetic they're just about the son mm. the the hard part of this is is that is is the second Samuel background which shows that sonship is tied to earthly figures who will sin hmm. and, and so um, so it's it's its foundation is that relationship that royal regal mm-hmm. relationship but of course what we know is is that Jesus is unique. -hmm. And in his uniqueness comes the escalation of the pattern. That's why I think it's more likely to be typological than strictly messianic. Uh, But having said that, it's two paths to get to the same landing point. That's the most important thing to see. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, although Christians discuss with themselves, well, is it directly prophetic or is it typological? They're both landing in the same place. And it's prophetic in one way or another. It's prophetic Mm -hmm. in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And the Son of God is. And Jesus, son of God, in the fullest sense of that term, we just Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, which interstate did we take to get there? (laughs) So
0: Yeah, wow. Well Psalm two is jam packed with all of this expectation and then you see it just escalating. But let's talk about Psalm one ten now. Psalm one ten, another royal psalm used in coronations. How was one ten used in a different way than Psalm two in its original context? So
2: Psalm two is looking at the anointing and the declaration that uh, he's my son, Psalm 110 is putting him on the throne. So Psalm 110 starts out saying this is a Psalm of David, and then David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, Mm -hmm. this is Adonai, lowercase, not Adonai, uppercase, uppercase is in verse 5. So Yahweh said to David's human Lord. Mm In the original context, sit at my right hand until mm-hmm. I make your enemies to footstool. So this is where, in the background of 1 Kings 1, where uh, uh, Nathan the prophet, Zadok the priest took Solomon, put him on the throne, just like David said, and when they did that, Yahweh invited the Davidic king, historically, to mm-hmm. sit upon the throne. Now it's called, it says, sit at my right hand, Yahweh mm-hmm. says this, David says that, that this one who's taking the throne is his Adonai, instead of uh, A-D-O-N-I, where God's God's is Adonay, Adonai versus Adonai. Uh, so one of the questions is when would when who would David's Adonai, lowercase L, who would that be? Would it be Solomon when Solomon became his lord? That's a very term that's used, by the way, in 1 Kings one. When Bathsheba and Zadok came in and say, said Adonijah's trying, you know, oh, 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 Adonim, my king, David, Adonijah's mm-hmm. trying to take the throne. So that's a term that they actually used to address David. So David is saying that Yahweh said to his human lord Solomon, "Sit at my right hand." Now, uh, Daryl talked about the background of the throne a few minutes ago in Chronicles, in Second Samuel seven, where God says to David. I'll establish your throne and his throne, I'll establish your kingdom and his kingdom. The parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 17, God says, I'll establish my throne and my kingdom Mm -hmm. because the Davidic throne and the Davidic kingdom was God's throne and God's kingdom because the Davidic king was God's Mm co-regent and the one through whom he was exercising his rule. The Davidic king was supposed to represent God's, God's authority, God's power, call people to obey God, and, and the Davidic king was ruling on behalf of God and by God as his co regent So if you could even think of the geography, if you will, um, my Hebrew Bible, which is bigger, let's say that this is north and this is south. This is the city of Jerusalem. Uh, Yahweh uh, is, on, uh, is enthroned in the tabernacle, the temple, on the high ground of Jerusalem. The palace is on the lower ground, on the hoi poloi, out, out here. Yahweh is enthroned here on higher ground. In his, he's, he's enthroned in heaven. The ark is the footstool of his feet, okay? And he's, his, his throne is facing east. The Davidic palace is on lower ground, facing east. Yahweh is the great king sitting upon his throne. The Davidic king would literally... Geographically, be at God's right hand.
1: Mm. Even though you're you're illustrating it with your left hand. Even though I'm most well, it's because my
2: Hebrew Bible is bigger and it's actually on higher ground now, and it's easier for people to conceive of north in this direction. Yeah, I'm in the Kidron Valley
3: right now,
0: (laughs) and those who are listening have no idea what
3: this episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there.
1: Yeah. Well, just think about it this way. The, the Holy of Holies is pointed towards the Mount of Olives. Okay. Okay. So I'm at the Mount of Olives. That's right. You're at the Mount of Olives, and and I'm, and I'm facing uh, towards the Mount of Olives. And the, the Holy of Holies is here, and at the right hand is what is called the City of David.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay? So the point is, the geography of Jerusalem Illustrates the language of the psalm. Mm-hmm. Okay, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the picture is, I mean, it, I mean, the king doesn't sit on the throne in the holy of holies, but he does sit on a throne in the palace. In the palace, and, and so,
2: and he's the, if you will, the right hand man, the co-regent. And even when when Queen when Queen uh, Sheba came to visit Solomon, Solomon had a throne. Put it his right hand for the Queen of Sheba to be an honorary guest there. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of a subordinate. But I interrupted.
1: Go ahead. But an honor, but an honorary, mm-hmm. honorary subordinate. Now there's another thing going on here that's countercultural that we shouldn't miss, and that is, in a patriarchal society, how is it that David would call a descendant his lord? Mm-hmm. Okay, in. In the normal scheme of things, the honor goes to the ancestor. Yeah. So this is breaking the normal pattern, which tells you something's going on. And of course, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is going to raise the same question. Mm-hmm. How is it that David could call his son, actually, it's going to be his great, 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 um, when in the normal scheme of things the honor would go to the ancestor, and let's make, make it even stronger, it would go to the founder of the dynasty. Mm. And so this break of pattern is designed to raise a question, in fact Jesus asked the question mm-hmm. of the of the Jewish leadership when he poses this initially. He doesn't answer the question, he just poses mm-hmm. uh, th- kind of a think about this mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, what's going on here? and. And so it's designed to say God is doing something. God is at work in the figure that has now been given the authority of being the co-regent of God, Mm -hmm. or to use the language of Psalm 2, son of God.
0: Mm That's quite a riddle, Matthew twenty-two. The Pharisees didn't know what to say. Either, they didn't right? know what yeah, to say. Yeah. No, no. So this is a—it's a mystery that's unraveling. And 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 he's presenting it as a
1: as a conundrum initially. Mm-hmm. And like I say, he doesn't. And he isn't saying so this is important to say. He isn't saying that the Messiah is not son of David. He's not trying to say that. You know why does he call him? Why does he call him Lord instead of son? That's that's not the point. The point is to say that. The lordship idea is the dominant thing that's going on in this psalm. The the recognition of the authority of this figure is the dominant thing that's going on in this psalm. And then when we get to how he answers that question when he's before the Jewish leadership, then there's a whole another level of things that he's doing. Mm-hmm, but I'll mm-hmm. save that for for later on. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, before we get to uh, the time of Jesus and explore that more fully, help us understand, Gordon, how the uh, uh, messianic expectation kind of came out of that in the intertestamental period, and how did that morph? Oh, this is this
2: is marvelous. So, um, historically, Yahweh puts Solomon and every Davidic king upon the physical throne on earth. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is the metaphorical. They're sitting at the metaphorical right hand of God. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so but what happened then was. Unfortunately, the Davidic kings, he always said, if, 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 uh, if you sin, I'll, I'll discipline you. I'll never remove my love. But unfortunately, the Davidic kings, as time went on, became faithless, and he tore down the dynasty, tore down the throne, sent the people into exile, but he never removed the promise. The promise remained. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the prophets began to look for Call the people to repentance. If the people repent, he'll bring them back to the land, they'll rebuild the temple and eventually restore the Davidic throne and bring about a new David, a greater David. So when the people came back to the land, they've got a temple, but there's no Davidic king. So this is why it's so interesting that Psalm 110 is in this post-exilic hymn book. It's interesting too, by the way, if we read uh, Psalm 107, 107, 108, 109, 110, 107 is praising God for bringing us back from exile. Mm -hmm. Psalm 108 and 109, though, are two old Davidic laments. Hmm. When David had lamented, he'd sinned, and God had disciplined him. Hmm. And Psalm 109, David is repenting and asking God to restore him to his good graces. And at the end of Psalm 109, David says, I know that God stands at my right hand. He protects me. So David had sinned. He'd asked for God to restore him. He's got confidence that God is going to restore him and protect him, and he stands at my right hand psalm 110 opens with god saying to david's son Mm -hmm. come sit at my right hand Mm -hmm. so it's interesting now why before we get to psalm 110 why would you have in the post-exilic period two psalms early psalms of david written centuries before confessing david's sin and asking god to forgive him could it be that the post-exilic people understood that davidic kings had sinned, Hmm. and the people now are using Psalm 108 and 109 to give voice for their hope that God will restore the Davidic dynasty and bring about this greater son of David. And Psalm 110, if you will, is is answering that by saying, yes, God will bring about the Davidic son, the Davidic king, a greater David, Mm -hmm. a greater Solomon, put him on the throne. So Psalm 110 then begins – is is rightfully so. Uh, The the people aren't – aren't playing fast and loose with the text because they know that God had promised to to establish an eternal kingdom. The promise still remained. And the prophets had proclaimed that God's going to raise up a new David. Mm -hmm. So they're reading Psalm 110 not just historically but canonically and eschatologically messianically. So Psalm 110 is giving voice to their understanding of the prophets and even understanding of the original prophecy and proclamation of Nathan that God's going to establish this throne forever. Mm -hmm. And so if you will, Psalm 110 is looking forward to the enthronement of the future Davidic King now one mm-hmm. thing I don't think they were expecting was that this right hand rule is going to go from the palace in Jerusalem up into heaven although, although some are going in the, beginning to go in that mm-hmm. direction mm-hmm. some are beginning to see a, a transcendent figure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's uh, so it it, it what Jesus does with it is not coming out of the blue it's all, mm-hmm. they're already beginning to
0: start seeing some of these things But so Jesus is, takes
2: to it to a completely different level.
0: There's this hope then that what is metaphorically true of this Davidic King would become uh, uh, realized eschatologically and the yeah. ultimate Davidic King
2: Yes yeah, so the Davidic w- saying "Sit at my right hand when it was said of David or Solomon that what was metaphorically true of David and Solomon is going to become literally true of Jesus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, uh and that's that typical typological escalation that that Daryl was talking
0: mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. well let's Go now to Jesus, and uh, let's talk about the Jewish examination in uh, Mark fourteen and other uh, and in Luke. What then does Jesus do with this Psalm one ten idea at his Jewish examination? Well, remember, he's
1: posed the question as a as a as a conundrum for people. How is it that David could call a descendant Lord in a society that's basically patriarchal mm-hmm. and in which the authority resides, generally speaking, and the honor goes to the ancestor? Mm-hmm. And here we've got it going clearly to a descendant. So this is breaking the pattern. What Jesus does when, when he is queried about whether he is the Christ is he replies in terms of two texts. One is Psalm 110.1 and the second is Daniel 7.14. He combines the picture of the Son of Man riding on the clouds, and this is an aside because this could be its own podcast by itself. Yeah. Um, the Son of Man is a, an Aramaic idiom that means a human being. It's basically what it means. But when you tie it to Daniel seven, it's a human being who rides the clouds. Now in the Old Testament, there's only basically one figure who rides the clouds, or one kind of figure who rides the clouds. And you can ask Gordon who Psalm that is. 68, it's Yahweh. That's mm. right. Okay. He's the writer
2: on the clouds So mm. God,
1: God rides the clouds. So I've got a human being riding on the clouds, coming to receive judgment authority from the ancient of days. So and it's I've,
2: important to know. It doesn't picture him going from earth. To heaven on a cloud. It right. pictures him being heavenly in origin. That's mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so the whole point here is is that I've got a human being doing, for lack of description, divine stuff, mm-hmm. and getting d- divine-like authority to exercise this judgment. So Jesus says that, um, and again, this depends on which version you're reading in terms of how this is introduced. But basically, that the Son of Man is going to be seated at the right hand of the power is the way. Mark expresses mm-hmm. it, coming on the clouds of heaven. And and so he's actually doing a couple of things at once. First, he's making clear that this authority that he has is a heavenly authority. And we talk about whether this is literal or figurative or not. Well, it's actually a mix, okay? Um, because on the one hand, it's, it's more literal in that Jesus is proximate to God in heaven. But if you ask, does God have a right hand? (laughs) I mean, just... Ponder that for a moment. Does he have a beard? Does he? Yeah. Yeah, Does he have a a literal throne? This is what this is a this is an anthropomorphism. This Mm -hmm. is a description of God as if He's a human figure, and of course, God is a spirit and He doesn't have limitation and that kind of thing. So, this is a way of picturing heavenly authority. There's still uh, there's still metaphors wrapped up in what's being described, but it Mm -hmm. is an escalation Mm -hmm. because the authority has gone from the earth up to the heaven. And, and so the second thing that's being said – and I, th- this, is, this is just cool, okay mm-hmm. – remember Jesus is a defendant, mm-hmm. in effect, before the Jewish leadership. He is on trial. They are deciding whether he is guilty of something that would allow them to take those charges to Pilate as the Roman uh, prefect and issue a verdict that he deserves to be crucified. And when they ask him, he's the Christ, they're basically saying, are you a king? And if he says he's a king, then um, they can take the charges to Pilate, and they can in effect say, Jesus proclaimed himself to be a king, but Pilate? Your job is to protect Caesar's interests and Rome is very interested in people who declare themselves to be king that Rome did not appoint because mm-hmm. Rome believes in law and order. You follow our law or we'll put you in order. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so in the process um, there's this challenge that they're fishing for. Well they actually get more than they bargained for because they ask if he's a king and he says, well not only a king. But I am going to be riding the clouds like the Son of Man and I'm going to be seated with God in heaven with divine authority well that that just they you know they it'd block. be like if somebody got
2: arrested at target under suspicion for stealing a coffee pot and the person says, "Did you steal the coffee pot?" Well not only did I steal the coffee pot, I steal,
1: I, I stole the stereo and I, I – I, 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 I took the store. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so the picture here is is that you may think I'm on trial here, but there is coming a day in which I will be your judge, and I'm going to exercise divine authority, and you will be answering to me. So they didn't like this answer mm-hmm. for a whole series of reasons. I'm going to be seated with God in heaven, I'm going to be riding the clouds of judgment authority, and one day... So what you do to me, God is going to vindicate me, and I will be your judge. They went, that's Mm blasphemy. But they couldn't go to Pilate and say, oh, uh, Jesus just committed blasphemy. Pilate would go, so what? I don't care. That's your religion. But if they go to Pilate and say he claims to be a king that Rome didn't appoint, which is sedition. Now Pilate, who's there to protect Caesar's interests, has got to act. This is right on his job description. Mm -hmm. And so so even though he's hesitant because he looks around and he says, that guy doesn't have an army, you know, I I don't sense any threat. Uh, This is not a big deal, but the pressure on him to do something because this is in his area leads him eventually to say, okay, we'll crucify him and we'll put king of the Jews over the cross to mm-hmm. say what he's being crucified for. So Psalm 110 is being used here, it's being pushed in all its language, mm-hmm. it's – it's again, there's discussion among Christians about whether this is directly prophetic and unique about Jesus or whether it's typological. We're ending up in the same place, which is that the authority that Jesus possesses as the lord is a authority he has because he gets to sit with god in heaven now let's keep play with that metaphor for a second mm-hmm. okay we're still f- we're still somewhat figurative here cuz you know where does god sit what kind of a chair does he sit in it's a good question don't ponder that too long okay but but we've got him and god being equally honored who gets to sit with god in heaven not stand before him or bow before him or be in his presence, but sit with him. And and then God turns around and makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus is proclaiming ultimately is a vindication of who he is before these people who are questioning who he is. and. And, you know, the, the interesting thing about Christmas is, of course, that we, we come and we stand before and we, and we rejoice in the fact that God took on human flesh and we think about this little baby in a manger and it's mm-hmm. sweet and everybody gets mm-hmm. all, you know, teary-eyed thinking about God coming in the flesh, et cetera, and it's this nice tender scene. But on the other end of this tender scene, on the other end, is this glorious picture of who this child is going to become and the Mm -hmm. authority that he bears. And so that is ultimately what's at stake because that legitimizes his death on the cross and his ability to take our place. It legitimizes his claim that he is the Son of God in the face of the alternative, which is blasphemy. And by the time you get to the end of the Gospels, you only have two choices about who Jesus is. He's either everything that he's claimed to be. Or he is a deceiver about what it is that he's claiming for himself, mm-hmm. and God's vote in that dispute, okay, which are put forward as the two options, is the empty tomb, mm-hmm. because the prediction is God is going to vindicate me, God is going to vindicate me, and in that vindication, you will come to understand, or you should come to understand, who I am.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well. Let's move to Acts chapter 2 now because I think we're going to see this Psalm 110 coming uh, full circle. Here we saw how it was interpreted in the pre exilic and the post exilic period, how Jesus interpreted it. And now I want to talk about how Peter interpreted it. So we got pre exilic. Can
2: I I ask, too, when you you talk about that, help us understand we were talking about whether it's directly prophetic or typologic prophetic, help us understand that the apostles are not just playing with the text and elevating. It was actually part of the divine design. That's exactly oh, right. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the whole
1: point. The whole point of of typological pattern is, is that God has designed this history as a part of his program so that you can see this. You can see it short term in an initial picture that has some of what's going on, and you can see it ultimately in the ultimate picture in which the base has been elevated in such a way that you go, that's completely unique. That mm-hmm. is the fulfillment. Mm-hmm. So and God so has both reference exactly in mind right. from the beginning. Exactly. Even exactly though the right. human
2: author Nathan or the Psalmist might not have understood
1: everything, oh, that's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And and so, and, and, you know, so it's interesting. So we got pre-exilic, post-exilic, and now we got Pentecost. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> so that'll preach. We yeah. got three Ps. Go. That's good. So that'll that'll satisfy all the pastors who want alliteration, <laughs> and uh, and. And so, of course, what we get in Acts two is a question about what in the world is going on that these people are speaking in tongues, mm-hmm. and Peter answer. You know, one one solution is well, it's they had a long night, they're drunk, um, and and Peter goes, no, that's not what's going on. This is evidence that. Jesus has been vindicated and raised to the right hand of the Father. He has received the Spirit from the Father, and he's poured out what you see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Mm -hmm. both Lord and Christ. Mm -hmm. So, So this distribution of the Spirit into the people of God, which enacts the hopes of the new covenant. The New Covenant is about two things. It's about forgiveness of sins and the writing of the law in the heart, or forgiveness of sins and the washing that takes place that allows the Spirit of God to indwell people. That depends on whether you're reading Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but it's the same picture, and it's the same hope. And so this is the eschatol, This is the arrival of the promise that Messiah longed for. In fact, Jesus said to his own disciples, kings and prophets longed to see what you're experiencing and didn't see it and experience it. Mm-hmm. So so this is the real so Pentecost becomes Psalm 110 becomes the proof text to explain what has happened to Jesus as a result of his crucifixion and resurrection. Well he found to use a German word a park plots, a parking place, okay? And he parked at the right hand of God, which raises the question of who can sit with God in heaven Mm -hmm. and survive, and not only is it who can sit with God in heaven and survive, but God is actually responsible for Jesus sitting at his right hand. Mm because it is the Lord who raised, it is the Father who raised the Son. Mm-hmm. And the the expression is Jesus was raised from the dead. It's always passive. And the picture is Jesus didn't raise himself from the dead. The Father raised Jesus as an act of vindication. And then the proof of the vindication is, on the one hand, the empty tomb, but secondly, the, the arrival of the Spirit, which is the arrival of the promise and the arrival of benefits that were achieved because Jesus went to the cross and ended up uh, dying for our sin and ended up being raised by God in vindication so he can now uh, distribute the elements of judgment authority that he possesses because judgment is not only negative, sometimes it's positive. And the positive part of the judgment that we're seeing is the distribution of the Spirit and the right to distribute the Spirit to the people of God. And so when the Spirit shows up, they're supposed to realize not only has the Spirit showed up, but the eschaton has showed up, the Messiah has shown up, and the Messiah is Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that Messiah is Lord. Well, how do we know he's Lord? Look at Psalm 110.1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for wow. your
0: feet. Wow, this is fascinating. I love I, I love thinking about this because as I was telling Gordon the other day, I think that this is correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the earliest Jewish apologetic for Jesus as Lord and Messiah. That's right, and it's tied to his death, resurrection, and ascension, almost like they're one event. It's this vindication with Psalm 110 in the background and the royal psalms, and it's just amazing. It's something we don't. Often
1: and it goes think about. back to another text that people don't think about, and that's Luke 3:16. I like to tell people Luke 3.16 is as important for the study and understanding of salvation as John 3.16 is. Everyone knows John 3.16, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's the only time I use the word believeth. And so – but uh, when you come to Luke 3.16, Luke tells us that the crowd is contemplating whether John the Baptist might be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And John answers the question, nope. Not me. I only baptize with water. There is one coming after me who's showing me, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. That's a cultural remark. Mm-hmm. In Judaism, if a Jew became a slave, they weren't supposed to, but if they did, there was one thing they were said not to do, and that was to untie the strap of their master's sandal in order to wash their feet. Okay? And John the Baptist says this as a prophet. So that's pretty high up on the vocational ladder. So the mm-hmm. difference between the one to come and John the Baptist is so great that a prophet, in fact, Jesus said he, uh, he was the greatest born of woman up to that time. So you can't get any higher on the human level than John the Baptist. But the difference is so great that he's not worthy to perform the most menial task of a slave and that a slave is not to perform. He's, he's created this gulf
0: mm-hmm. between
1: the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then he says this. I baptize with water, but the one coming after me is going to baptize with the Spirit and fire. So, what he's saying is the way you can know who the Messiah is, and the way you can know that the eschatological era has come, is the one who brings the Spirit of God to the people of God. And so this. Pentecost, Acts 2, actually goes back to something John the Baptist said in Luke 3.16. And if you read Luke-Acts as a narrative, that remark actually gets repeated as something John says, Hmm. as something Jesus said as something that happens at Pentecost, as something that gets reflected on by Peter about Pentecost when the spirit descends on Cornelius, and it also gets talked about by Paul by Paul at Pisidia Antioch. So we've got John the Baptist saying it, mm-hmm. Jesus saying mm-hmm. it, Luke saying it, Peter saying it, Paul saying it, and of course John the gospel writer also said it because in the upper room discourse he said I have to go so I can send another. So this is at the core of what that little baby Jesus hmm. came to do.
0: Hmm. That's amazing. Well, our time has slipped away from us, but thank you so much for helping us think through the Royal Psalms and how we connect that to Jesus, especially around Christmas time as we think about the Incarnation and who Jesus is. Thanks so much, Daryl.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Thank you, Gordon. Absolutely. And we thank you so much for joining us on the table once again. today. If you have a topic you'd like us to consider for a future episode, please email us at the table at dts.edu. I'm Michael Del Rosario, and we hope to see you again next time on The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash table Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love
2: well.